Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 55, The History of Medieval Europe, part 1. Last week, we left bad King John, trying to get his kingdom back in 1206. So, by all accounts, I should now be charging on with John's domestic politics. The struggle to regain the empire, the struggle with the papacy, even Magna Carta. But in fact, I'm not. What I am in fact going to do is a general survey of the history of Europe up to and during the 12th century. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Why doesn't this bloke get on with it? First, he uses some feeble excuse to warble on about Outremer. Now it's the absurdly potted history of Europe. I'm going to listen to Ray Harris. He's good. Or stick with Mike. He's brilliant. Goodbye, history of England. So long. Well, don't blame me. Blame a listener called Harry, who suggested the idea, and various guys on Facebook who thought it was a good idea. Yano, Chad, Bethany, Ben, Peter, Jennifer and Monarch. Now, I imagine they thought I'd do a quick survey in 10 minutes, but they were wrong. Very wrong, as it turns out. I also apologise to Mark. Mark, we're talking fact explosion time. Anyway, before I start, I should recommend a book, which shall be, appropriately, A History of Medieval Europe from Constantine to St Louis by R.H.C. Davis. The book originates in the 50s, but has been regularly updated and is still the best. Davis used lots of individuals and lives to make the themes come alive, so although it's a meaty book... It's a compelling read and a great story as much as anything. I should also recommend the most impressive history podcast that I have yet to come across, which is called Europe Since Its Origins by Joseph Hogarty. 
you can find it on iTunes or there's a link on thehistoryofengland.com through the Podcasts You Might Like page. It's a stunning piece of work with a superb array of images and maps and quotes to go with it. It's not a Mike Duncan approach with plenty of humour and indeed I hope Joseph won't mind if I describe it as slightly grumpy in places but it is really brilliantly told and serious history. So, I guess what I should do is cover a load of grand themes, but actually I'm not going to do that, except in passing. I'm just going to bring us up to date, i.e. up to about 1200 or a bit later, with those countries which have played a peripheral part over the last few episodes, or even no part at all, in no particular order. I should warn you that this episode, gentle listeners, is long on facts, short on gags. It reminds me, in a rather less heroic way, obviously, of Ernest Shackleton's famous advert. Maybe you know the one. It read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Ernest received 5,000 applications as a result. IMA achieved 5,000 desertions instead, but enough blather onwards. Let's start with just a short bit about economics and population. This is just to make the point that the economic changes we've talked about in England are broadly true of much of Europe as well. The same benign change in climate up to about 1200, the same population growth. The numbers, of course, are deeply questionable, but one guess would have the population of Europe at about 40 million in 1000, reaching a peak of about 60 million in 1200. But the growth is uneven, so what you might consider as the old world, the Mediterranean and the Balkans, grew by much less than the average, as did Poland, Russia and Hungary. After the setback of the Black Death, their population levels fell back to the levels of uh, the year 1000, whereas France, Germany, England and Scandinavia trebled their population up to 1300, and even after the Black Death had more than double the population of the year 1000. But overall then, it was a period of growth. There were some improvements. Some areas profited from crop rotation, which increased yields. Some areas saw greater use of the horse and the efficiencies of speed and costs that that brought, and the use of water mills and windmills. The improvement in climate carried through until about 1200, which also helped crop yields and the amount of land that could be used for crops. Towns and trade grew all over Europe. Italy saw the biggest and earliest gains in external trade, carrying trade from all over Europe. So, for example... They sold slaves from Germany to the Arabs of Africa and Levant. They carried Flemish and English cloth and sold it to Constantinople. Other significant areas of urban growth were Flanders and the Low Countries and the German towns of the Hans on the Baltic Sea. The growth of these towns led to a start of political development. Now, we're not talking democracy here, God forbid, but the privileges that towns like Ypres gained led to the development of guilds and associations, and to the development of more codified urban law. So, by 1200, many of the northern Italian cities had acquired very considerable degrees of freedom. Trade fairs like those of Champagne flourished and helped the growth of international trade. Meanwhile, there was a growing use of money in circulation, fuelled by the German silver mines in the Hartz Mountains. To a small degree, we see the very early stirrings of greater specialisation in skills such as metalworking and wheelwrights. 
but mostly everything that needed to be made would still be made within the village. But a word of warning about all of that. By and large, economic growth was, just as we've discussed in England, more a product of expansion rather than a growth in productivity. So it was still fragile. However, this economic growth and wealth was accompanied by intellectual change, the so-called Renaissance of the 12th century. Cathedral chapters founded schools of learning, most famously at Chartres near Paris. Great universities flourished, such as the study of theology at Paris, law at Bologna, and medicine at Salerno in Sicily. The study of the ancients, such as Aristotle and Euclid, restarted through contact with the Greek and Arabic worlds. Nani gigantum humorous incidentes was first said by Bernard of Chartres in the 12th century. We are dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants, despite it being usually attributed to Isaac Newton a few years later. France became a centre of intellectual life, and maybe the greatest achievement was the re-establishment of an intellectual life founded on logic and reason. This is the period of the great new cathedrals, with the beginning of the transition in Northern Europe from Romanesque to Gothic. Life was still desperately hard for most people in 1200, but the ravages of the Vikings, Hungarians and Saracens had largely ended. More people used money, more people were freer. OK, so let's take a tour around the political map of Europe. There are maps, gentle listeners, maps on the website. I'll do my best to describe but there are maps at thehistoryofengland.com. And of course, as all us history enthusiasts know, you need to know where you've come from before you can say where you're going. So, let's start with a wooded hillside in 732, between the cities of Tours and Poitiers in central France. An army of something like 30,000 francs waited there, under the command of a man called Charles Martel, the Hammer. Martel was the effective leader of the Franks, under the nominal kingship of the Merovingian dynasty, the dynasty that had ruled most of modern-day France since the end of the Western Roman Empire. The Franks were a Germanic tribe that had spread across all of France, northern Italy and modern-day Austria. But on that day in 732, they faced an even more successful tribe. After Muhammad's death in 632, his successors and the caliphs of the Umayyad dynasty had taken Islam and the Arabic tribes all the way across the classical world. The Sassanid Empire of Persia had disappeared. The Byzantine Empire, which had stretched from Gibraltar to Egypt, had been confined to just the Balkans and Anatolia. This has got to be one of the most extraordinary successes in history that had taken a small group of primitive tribes to a massive empire, driven by economic hardship and religious fervour. The forces of Islam had seemed to prove irresistible, and they had a force of something like 80,000 warriors facing the Franks. In the west, the Arabic juggernaut had rolled over almost all of Spain, leaving just a tiny Christian kingdom in the mountainous north and northwest, and they were now in southern France. If Martel lost the battle, there was no other organised force between Islam and a stick of rock in Margate. For seven days, the two armies eyed each other and tested each other out. The leader of the Muslim force, Abdul Rahman, didn't want to attack the wood, where his superiority in cavalry would be lost. 
Martel had been preparing for ten years for this battle. His army was battle-hardened and heavily armed. But he knew it would be suicide to get caught in the open by the larger force. He gambled that Abdul Rahman would need to attack and sack Tor to reward his followers. And to get to Tor, he needed to get through the Franks. Eventually, Martel won the War of Nerves, and Abdul Rahman attacked. The Fearson cavalry launched attack after attack on the Frankish phalanx. But the Christian infantry wouldn't be broken, even when a group broke into one of the squares and attempted to kill Martel. And then a rumour ran round the Muslim army that the Franks were attacking their camp in the rear. This caused panic and concern. Maybe they were worried that the Franks would be stealing their pillows or that the Germans be putting towels on their personal jet chairs before they could get back. Or maybe it was the fact that it was full of their treasure from the recent sack of Bordeaux. But they were worried, so numbers of them started to go back and have a look. And indeed, Martel's scouts had launched a raid, though not a big one. But the panic spread through the Muslim army, and it turned into a full retreat. Abdul Rahman was killed, and the Muslim army retreated back over the Pyrenees into Spain. The significance of Charles Martel's victory at Tours is poo-pooed a bit by some modern historians, not given to individual epoch-changing events. But let's not worry about the poo-pooing. Let us in fact poo-poo the poo-pooing. The battle was of extraordinary significance. Who knows, but without it, Christianity might just have been relegated to a footnote of history. But Charles Martel did win. Even before this victory, it had become clear that he, as the mayor of the palace, held the real power rather than the defunct Merovingian king of France. So Julie, his son, Pepin the Short, shunted the last Merovingian king off to a monastery somewhere and became the start of the dynasty that becomes known as the Carolingian dynasty. And to understand European history, you need to know about their most famous son, Charlemagne, Charles the Great. Now, I remember mentioning Charlemagne in the episode about Offa and making a great play about how Offa spoke as an equal with Charlemagne. If you don't know the story of Charlemagne, then you wouldn't know quite how impressive that is, so let me explain. Charlemagne was by and large the dude. He expanded Pepin's empire into a stonking empire that stretched from the borders of Spain all the way through France, the Low Countries, Germany and the North and Central Italy. And while I love the Dark Ages and agree with modern historians that stress the continuity and learning that did exist through the period, it's also true to say that there was a consciousness in European culture at this time that things had got worse rather than better, a harking back to the days of the glories of the Roman Empire. Charlemagne built a vision of how the glories of the Roman Empire could be recreated through a deal between king and pope. The deal was this. Charlemagne would defend the Pope, protect him from his enemies and support the spread of Christianity. The Pope would lend his spiritual power to Charlemagne in return. He would anoint him Emperor of the Romans to show that he was special, appointed by God. I always used to miss the real point of this. You need to think back to the time of Constantine. Charlemagne modelled himself on Constantine with all the supremacy of the Emperor over the Church that this implies. As far as Charlemagne was concerned, the Pope was very much the junior partner in all this. But famously, in 800, he was crowned as the Holy Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III in Rome. 
Now, obviously, this was an absolute outrage as far as Byzantium was concerned, since as far as they were concerned, Charlemagne was a grubby little barbarian and they were the Romans. So what was this German bloke thinking about? Didn't the Germans just spend their lives stealing other people's deck chairs? But it clearly works. And Charlemagne carried out his bit of the bargain. For example, by winning the Pope a group of land around the central part of Italy, so that the Pope could have his own territory to support him. And through his brutal conversion of the Saxon tribes in Germany to Christianity. Now, Charlemagne's massive empire didn't survive long after his death. The idea of primogeniture was not established yet, so his empire was divided within 30 years of his death. In 842, the kingdom was divided into three. The Western Franks, for which you can think France and the Low Countries. Lotharingia, which was the bit in the middle, including Italy and all the way up the top to Denmark. And then the Eastern Franks, think Germany. Now, as it happens, Lotharingia doesn't survive and is split up between the two others, though it does leave an impression. Not that us Europeans are an argumentative bunch, of course, but Alsace-Lorraine, for example, on the German-French border, continued to be a bone of contention between France and Germany into the 20th century. So, that's a 1200-year argument, then. So here's a basic fault line in European history, then. The split into France and Germany. At the time, of course, it was just East Franks under a chap called Louis the German and the West Franks under Charles the Bald. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Throughout the 9th century, external attacks and chaos continue. We've become familiar here at the History of England with the Vikings and their attacking of Western Europe. But we're less aware of the Modiers or the Hungarians. Just while I'm on it, you may well have seen the word Modia written down as Magyar. M-A-G-Y-A-R. Just believe me, it's pronounced Modia. Nobody I've ever told this has ever believed me, but I tell you, I am right and they are wrong. Usually, I admit I can be wrong, but not on this one. Hopefully that's clear enough. But just to avoid further argument, let's call them Hungarians. Anyway, just as the Vikings disrupted the development of France, so the raids of the Hungarian horsemen had the same impact in Central and Eastern Europe and Northern Italy. Meanwhile, further south, the Saracens are wreaking havoc. Almost all of Spain was Arabic already, of course, but now Sicily and southern Italy are added to their empire. Under this intense pressure, most of Europe fragments. If the period doesn't necessarily invent the concept of feudalism, it most certainly accelerates the process. On the one hand, there is the inability of the Western Frankish kings to defend their people against Viking attack. So, let's say a Viking boat drifts up the Loire and a bunch of hairy Scandinavians start laying about them. A message gets sent off to the king in Paris who calls up his lords and their men and let's say three weeks later he turns up in all his glory to teach those barbarians a good lesson. By which stage, of course, the hairy Scandinavians are a long way away. 
teaching someone else somewhere else a lesson. Kings tried hard to deal with it, particularly by building forts to block the raiders' progress, like the borough system in England, and a similar approach in France. But in France, its success is limited. Which means that your average peasant on the Clapham omnibus is going to start looking around for someone local to protect them against hairy people. Then you need to add to this the absence of the sophisticated administration and government apparatus of the Roman Empire. Charlemagne's empire may not have been as big as the Roman Empire, but it was big enough. And unlike the Roman Empire, despite Charlemagne's best efforts, it lacked the civil service and physical apparatus that could overcome the communication problems of ruling such a big thing. And so develops the system that we've talked about ad nauseam, feudalism, where basically the king gives out a package of land in return for military service, and the local lord rules that patch of land on the king's behalf. The French and German states now take a very different route between the 10th and 13th centuries. The French take the low road. We know a lot about the French situation, of course. The effective power of the French kings shrinks to a small, fertile area around Paris and Orléans called the Ile de France. They, in effect, take the approach of making sure that their control of their domain lands is absolutely secure and do their best to maintain some recognition of their feudal rights over the rest of the kingdom. But hated or loathe it, their great lords go their own way. Unfortunately for them, while it's a long-term strategy that takes over 200 years to start paying back, payback it does under Philip Augustus. Given that Philip had control over his own resources from his domain land, he's able to defeat the Angevins and take back the territories on his own terms. But the Germans, meanwhile, take the high road. Their strategy is to try and keep the glory and ideals of Charlemagne going, to maintain a strong, centralised empire that unites all of Christendom. Their story traditionally starts in 911. Louis the Child, the last descendant of Charlemagne through Louis the German, died. The obvious dynastic choice might have been to go back to Charles the Simple, who was king of the West Franks at the time. But instead, they elect their very own king, a man called Conrad, Duke of Franconia. So the basic building blocks within Germany are five what they call stem duchies. Four of these stem duchies relate to the original German tribes. So we have Franconia in the middle from the tribe of the Franks. Saxony in the north and no prizes for guessing the name of the tribe. Swabia in the southwest from the Alamanni. And finally, Bavaria from the Rougie and others. The fifth stem duchy, Lotharingia, on the border with France, was a remnant of the Middle Kingdom of Lotharingia, and therefore not necessarily based on any one tribe. And then, of course, the king also claimed lands throughout Italy, except in the south, but in Germany, keep those five stem duchies in mind. Franconia, Saxony, Swabia, Bavaria and Lotharingia. Now, Things got off to a bad start with Conrad, who was something of a loser, both in terms of royal power and being beaten up by Modiers. His successor, Henry the Fowler, is much more effective. But despite this, we're going to power on straight over the Henry the Fowler and we're going to talk about Otto I, Otto the Great as he's known. Because it's Otto who really established the Holy Roman Empire and a system of government unique to it. Otto had a few problems and ambitions. First of all, there were those blessed modules who kept burning and pillaging. 
Then there was his internal power. The idea of the duchies were that they were supposed to be purely administrative units, led by an officer of the crown. But, just like in France, actually what the dukes did was to try to make them hereditary, so that they owned the lands and the powers themselves, and passed it on to their children and their children's children, and so on. So, as far as Otto was concerned, that had to stop. If this went on, they'd start putting towels on sun loungers, and then where would civilization end up? Then there was the small matter of the leadership of Christendom. Otto agreed with Charlemagne. As far as he was concerned, Otto was going to be emperor, and that meant just like the Roman emperors, a spiritual as well as a temporal leader. There'd be none of this, church is so much more important than a mere king stuff. As far as he was concerned, he had a mission to protect the church and extend it into the pagan Slavic lands to the east. And the Pope was just one of those people who'd help him do it. So in 936, Otto was elected as king of the Eastern Franks. You might want to note that election thing. As you know very well, election is a tradition of Germanic kingship. In England, it becomes a formality before the Normans arrive. The Germans were never to shake it off and it would come back to haunt them. Otto's coronation was attended by all the dukes who all swore faithfully to do everything that Otto told them to do. As a consequence, Otto spent the next few years trying to get the dukes to do what he told them to do and to establish the principle that they were officers of the crown, not private going concerns. And in this he was largely successful. He also made members of his own family dukes on the idea that blood is thicker than water. Since one of these dukes would be known as Henry the Quarrelsome, you can guess the success of that particular idea. Then in 955, Otto met the Modiers in battle at Lechfeld and won a crushing victory. Lechfeld had two consequences. It quelled the final rebellions against his authority and it ended the Hungarian threat. Otto then came up with a different approach to solving his problem of how to keep permanent control and how to stop the forces that led to the splitting up into little pieces. His answer, the Ottonian system, is spectacularly medieval. The idea was that Otto would rule his kingdom through the clergy. A whole array of abbots and churches were given complete immunity from the dukes. Bishops might even be appointed to the role of duke, with the massive added advantage that they couldn't then found a dynasty, given the fact that the clergy weren't supposed to have children. It was a brilliant idea. And it works really well for a hundred years or so. And do not for a moment think that it was simply a cynical power politics thing. Otto looked to Rome as the golden age of civilization, and he wanted to recreate it, just as Charlemagne had. He had a genuine passion for extending the power of the church. Forget this idea of the separation of church and state. No medieval man would have seen it as desirable. OK, so neat idea, and it worked. The Ottonian system. But... Its success was dependent on two things. Firstly, the king needed to control the Pope so that he could make the decisions he needed to. For example, in establishing a new archbishopric in the lands freshly conquered from the Slavs. So, control of the Pope. Secondly, he needed to be able to control church appointments within Germany, abbots, bishops and so on. For Otto, this all works fine. Because in 959... Pope John needs his help. The rule about electing a Pope was that he was supposed to be appointed by, quote, the clergy and people of Rome. 
and John, like so many of the popes, was being ruthlessly bullied by the Roman aristocracy. So he asked Otto for help, and Otto gladly came down, beat up John's enemies, confirmed Pepin and Charlemagne's grants of lands in central Italy to the Pope, and then casually popped John into his pocket too. Because in return for his help, John crowned him emperor in St Peter's Basilica in 962. John then panicked. He realised that he was in Otto's pocket and control and tried to find a different protector. Unfortunately, John was something of a colourful character, who'd castrated a subdeacon and invoked the help of the devil when playing at dice, which is a lovely thought. He'd also fornicated with his father's concubine, which feels as though the family supper table could have been a little awkward. So Otto was able to depose him and install his own Pope, and therefore his system was complete. By the time he died in 973, Otto the Great had achieved the ultimate accolade and been accepted even by Byzantium, which was quite a thing. So they then sent an imperial princess to marry Otto's son, Henry. Again, don't think all of this is a power play by the Holy Roman Emperor. Otto's successors make a genuine contribution towards reforming the church. But the church never really accepted being subject to the emperor, and there's a conscious continual pressure to take back their rights. In 1057, for example, they managed to get away with the emperor not nominating the pope during an imperial regency. But the big one is a chap called Hildebrand, or Gregory VII to give him his papal name. Gregory was not only a Hildebrand, he was a firebrand. There have been lakes of ink spilt over the guy. Was he a dogmatic, narrow-minded, power-hungry schismatic, or simply a man of God with a passion for reforming the church? When I was younger, I was convinced of the former. Now I have to say, I think I've changed my mind. But however you look at it, he was quite a man. But I think that's for episode two of the History of Europe, and we'll come back to that next time. So it just remains for me to thank you for listening to the History of Not Necessarily England. Thank you again for your sport and comments and such like. Good luck and have a great week.